Well, it is graduation weekend, which is awesome, and I love it. It makes me think back when I graduated high school, not too many moons ago, but kind of many moons ago. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas, and I came to Colorado State as a freshman. My parents drove me, and a friend from high school dropped us both off at Edwards Hall in the dorms and said, see you later, and my dad cried, and I was like, what's going on? This is weird. So, uh, I was infatuated with this newfound freedom as a college freshman. No longer was I under my parents' proverbial thumb, living in their home, but I was on my own. And I wanted to go explore that freedom, and so one night, as a college freshman, we decided to go out. And these are my before Christ days, I'll just give that little caveat. Um, and so we were looking for parties, looking for fun stuff to do. And if any of you have been around CSU's campus the last week of August, you know that there's these little pods of freshmen that are just moping around, not only campus, but the neighborhoods. And so that was us. And we found a party on the north side of campus. And I mean, long story short, it was pretty lame. <laughs> And so I, I go out to the front of this house and I see a guy in the middle of the street, a young kid, maybe about my age, don't really remember, but he was trying to light a box on fire. <laughs> and I said, that's not going to work. Uh, the box was like a little wet and I was a bit of a pyro when I was a kid, so I knew how these things work. And so I take off my shirt and I give him my undershirt to actually, and I said, here, Use this as fuel to your fire. <laughs> and I have this image just ingrained in my mind of him lighting my tank top undershirt and he's holding it and the flames are coming up it. And then he drops it and puts his box on it. And then it just catches fire. <laughs> and what happened after that was unbelievable. <laughs> People began throwing as much fuel on that fire as they could. People were ripping branches out of trees. They were ripping fences apart to throw on this fire. People were, I don't even know where they were getting stuff. They were pulling stuff out of their cars. And I look up at the trees and they're all mangled. <laughs> and pretty soon this thing just grows into this massive bonfire. We're talking like 10 by 10. Just huge. And then all of a sudden, I see this like stop sign get thrown into the fire. And it's like, not just the sign, we're talking pole and all, just poof. I said, oh my goodness, that escalated quickly. And so I'm, I'm looking across this bonfire, I'm looking for my friends, just like, do you guys see this? What's going on? And uh, all of a sudden, there are people, they're, they're around a car, and they begin like tipping it back and forth, back and forth. And then one side like steps back and they tip the car over. And I just said, oh man, that would suck. And then a girl comes out, and she's like, that's my car, what are you guys doing? I said, yeah, that does suck. Um, and then it happened three more times. They, they tipped over four cars. And so a riot had officially started. <laughs> and we're rioting, and then all of a sudden I see like police marching towards us, and they shoot these canisters, and they begin to smoke, and there's this tear gas. And, and then we run the other way, and there's like barricades and police officers like leading us back to campus. And I was like, oh, this is par for the course, I guess. Um, so 
that story has nothing to do with our passage this morning. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, as we reach the culmination of our study in the book of Hebrews, it's been a great study. And um, as we land the plane this morning, I want you to look inwardly. What is the fuel that you need in the fire of your Christian life right now? You might be discouraged. You might be looking for other sources of satisfaction that are currently failing you. How do you keep that fire going in your heart as a follower of Jesus? Well, God's Word is the very fuel. And it is a hope for those who maybe you have just a flicker going on in your life right now as a Christian. Well, this great text that we have here in Hebrews 13, it is the fuel. It does show us the work of God, of not only what He has done through Christ, but what He wants to do through us. And as we carry on with the Christian life, that fire will continue to burn. And we should continue to put the proper fuel in our lives to have that fire burn hot. So God's work for us is the fuel to the fire for our work for God. I've got three points here this morning. And, oh, fancy that. They're all C's. I didn't know that. Um, okay, here's my three points. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. The work of the church, the work of Christ, and the work of carrying on. So we're going to take it point by point. My first point, the work of the church. And this is uh, the leaders and the listeners in the church. This is in verses 17 through 18, if you have your Bibles open. So as we return here to Hebrews 13, uh, I'll just by way of reminder, he has these closing commands that he's just kind of firing off at us. And two weeks ago, Rich, he gave the great Mother's Day sermon on money, sex, and relationships. And last week, Aaron, he reminded us that since Jesus doesn't change, we should have a lifestyle of liturgy, a lifestyle of worship, seeking to do good and make the necessary sacrifices for God. Well, in these two verses, shutting it down, we have three imperatives to obey. Three commands that the listeners are called to. Those three are obey, submit, and prayer. And yes, obedience is commanded here. And we as Christians should know that we are called to obedience and in general submission to authorities. But we should be careful here and give it the proper definition. What this is not talking about is just this kind of unblanketed, unqualified, excuse me, unqualified blanket obedience. That's not what it's talking about here. This is how cults get started. If all of a sudden you have people trying to give you detailed direction, it might seem like a good idea at first, but if it ends up with uh, poison Kool-Aid and black Nikes, just encourage you to run. The call to obedience here is not merely one of your external actions, but it's rather one of the heart. And when true biblical obedience is called, it should never contradict how God has revealed Himself in the Word, as well as your individual conscience. So the, the question that I've been wrestling through with this passage all week is, why? 
Why are the listeners called to obedience here? Well, I think it's because of what the leaders are called to. Look at the work of the leader here in our passage. It says that they are to keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, specifically, these leaders are the pastors of the church, ones who care for the sheep. It's more focused and zoomed in than the general leaders that Aaron talked about last week mentioned in verse 7 of our passage. But here in verse 17, these are the pastors that keep watch. They literally chase away sleep. They keep oneself awake as they care for the sheep. It makes me think of uh, the incarnation account in Luke when the shepherds were keeping watch by their flock of their flock by night. These pastors are worthy to obey and submit to because they are good, hardworking, conscientious, and caring shepherds. And the Hebrews writer here, he goes on to explain that the reasons these pastors can be tr- trusted is because they will have to give an account to God. And this truth, for me as your pastor, and I would hope for any pastor, and especially those who aspire to ministry, this truth that we have to give an account to God, there's a certain weight and there's a certain gravity to this reality. There is a responsibility for the spiritual health of the church. Our pastoral team here at The Crossing deeply cares for the sheep. I hope you know that, and I hope, more importantly, that you see that as we walk with you, as we teach you the Word, as we put the necessary programs forth in our church to help you grow in your walk with Jesus. We want to see Christ formed in each and every one of you. And we will all have to give an account to God someday. Not just the leaders, but every single person will stand before the judgment seat of God. And for those who are in Christ, that is a day not to be feared. But there is this great white throne judgment. Something that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Romans 14 talks about. That we will have to give an account to God for the works that we have done in our lives. What does that mean? I'm sorry to say, I don't really know. (laughs) The scriptures aren't incredibly detailed about what that day is going to look like. It talks about this idea of uh, things that are built in our lives, whether they're made of straw and hay, they they will be burnt up, but the things in our lives that have been built on the foundation of Christ, they will remain. And for the leaders and the pastors, when we have that conversation with God, I don't know what it's going to look like. I can guess that it's going to be a little bit longer of a conversation because James 3.1 says that teachers will be judged with greater strictness. But again, for those who are in Christ, we don't have to fear that day. But we do know that that day is coming. And so what we do in this life echoes in eternity. That's a true thing that not just Maximus said. (laughs) All good stories first find their stories in God. So, the stakes are higher for us as leaders, and therefore, we watch, and we occasionally lose sleep as we pray for you, as we 
walk through the difficulties and the highs that you are going through as a church. And for us as a pastoral team, it is a privilege to walk with you, to bear your burdens. And we have been entrusted with you from our great God. And your response to us as your leaders is not a begrudging obedience that we lord over you, but rather it is a response of trust. Not just towards us, but ultimately a response of trust to Jesus, the Good Shepherd. So, at the end of verse 17, the author, he contrasts this idea of joy and groaning. almost said joining. Joy and groaning. I would say joy and groaning basically sums up the emotions of pastoral ministry. Oftentimes, people will ask me, hey, Daniel, what is it like to be a pastor? And I'm just like, gosh, that's a broad question. Can you narrow it down a little bit for me? Um, but I say, God, it's awesome. And it's incredibly difficult at the same time. There is a unique and peculiar joy that comes from being a pastor because we have a front row seat at seeing God's hand at work in people's lives. Seeing them cross over from death to life. Seeing them have convictions born from God's Word as we teach it to them. We get to see families and marriages not only begin and get established, but oftentimes when they go astray, we get to see them restored and reconciled. It's an awesome job. But there's groaning as well. (laughs) Uh, There's groaning because there will always be obstinate sheep who are continually wayward. There's groaning because there's biting sheep who don't just want to take a little nibble, but sometimes they want to take a chunk out of you. And then there's the self-righteous sheep who think they can do the job better than you. And this is all part of the gig. Like, I joyfully pursue it. We as a pastoral team joyfully pursue it. But occasionally there is groaning. And in this most recent COVID season of trying to figure out how to gather, when to gather, what to do in our gathering. Are you going to wear a mask? Are you not going to wear a mask? I would say it was probably marked by more groaning than joy. Like, let's be honest here. It was probably for all of us. But that season made us stronger. That season made us stronger, not only as a pastoral team leading together, but I think that season made us stronger as a church. And on the other side of it, looking back, God did some great things. God did some great things to have you not just have this, okay, I'm going to obey and submit, but many of you sought to understand, and you came and you had questions, and you sat down with us, and you, and you wanted to understand the reasoning behind the policies that we put forth to gather together, and the importance of gathering together. And now, guys, I don't know if you realize this, but it's, it's one year almost to the date that we've been gathering together as one service. And this last year has been incredible joy to worship together, to lift up our voices, to hear the entire church sing. And many of you obeyed our decisions. Many of you submitted to the vision that we set forth that it is important to gather face to face. And many of you prayed for us. And let me encourage you all, don't stop now. Don't stop now. This is the work that you as the listeners, you as the church are called to as we lead. 
You were called to obey, to trust, to have confidence in. You were called to submit. Kind of this idea of no longer begrudging or trying to fight against, but to yield oneself, to give way. And you are called to pray. Pray for us as a pastoral team that we would have continued unity, that we would have continued crystal clear vision in where we are headed. So the leaders here in Hebrews and us as your leaders, our consciences are clear. We will give an account to God someday and they are clear because we are striving to give you His Word. We stand in the gap. And this is the work of the church. It always flows from the work of God. And that's where our passage leads us to next. My second point, the work of God through Christ. This is in verses 20 and 21. So we have this prayer of blessing here to close out the book of Hebrews. You might have a little um, title to that section in your Bible that says benediction. Um, this, this is where the flame burns hottest in our passage here this morning because of the fuel of what has been accomplished through Christ. He begins this prayer of blessing with, now may the God of peace, of all the attributes that he could have picked, he picked this idea of God being a God of peace. Why? Well, look at the work of God through Christ. He says, the God of peace brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus, reminding us and his original audience of the resurrection and the joyful and powerful work that only God could do, that we sang about just a few moments ago. The powerful, mighty work of God through the resurrection. And notice how Jesus is defined in our passage. He says, our Lord. Lord, the King, the ultimate authority, who is yet personal. And He's not personal to just all of us. He's personal to you and to me. He is the great shepherd or the better pastor. And He is the great shepherd of the sheep. And that is you and I, but also the church universal. So this personal great shepherd who has been brought from the dead, notice it was by the blood of the eternal covenant. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> by the blood of the eternal covenant. Well, blood, sacrifice, covenant, these have been themes that we've been hitting on constantly throughout the book of Hebrews because the Old Testament is rich in this language. And back in chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 1, we are called to consider Jesus, who, who is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. More glory than the covenant that God made with His people in Exodus through Moses. Jesus is the great high priest who not only sympathizes with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, He is the great high priest who doesn't have to offer sacrifices continually, but He has offered Himself once and for all. As Hebrews often draws on these Old Testament themes and language, there's no doubt in my mind that the author here was thinking of Isaiah 53. 
If you're familiar with that passage, I'll have it here on the screen. You're welcome to flip over to it. But let me just read from Isaiah 53. Starting in verse 4, this is Jesus. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You see, we are the wayward, biting, self-righteous sheep who have gone our own way to the point that there is a massive chasm between us and God because of our sin. And it is deserving of God's righteous punishment, His just wrath against sin. But our God is a God of peace for those who are in Christ. You see, it was through the shedding of Jesus' blood, Him being crushed for our iniquities, Him being pierced for our transgressions, the chastisement, the punishment that was upon Him brought us peace. And by His wounds, we are healed. We are restored. We are brought back into right relationship. Peace with God. Our great God is the God of peace because of Jesus' better sacrifice. Something that the Jewish law could never accomplish. Something that you could never accomplish. And this is what separates Christianity from all the other world religions is that our God is a God of peace. He is pleased with you, not because of something that you have done for Him, but what He has done for you. This is the very heart of the Christian message. This is where the flame burns the hottest. Your sin and mine separated us from God, but it is through the blood of the eternal covenant, the exchange that took place, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we would have peace. That we would be righteous. That God's approval and acceptance is ours. This God of peace, He brought back Jesus from the dead. And that was essentially saying the sacrifice was sufficient. He accepts it. And notice that it's not just an eternal, it's not just a temporal sacrifice, but it is an eternal sacrifice through the blood of the eternal covenant. It's good forever. And so it begs the question, do you know this God of peace? Do you know that your sin is what has separated you and God? And do you know that salvation is offered to you? You can know this God of peace. God can be pleased with you today, not because of you cleaning yourself up, not because of you coming to a religious meeting, not because of you putting on the costume of the Christian life, but because of your faith in Christ. If you don't know Jesus, I encourage you, know Him, believe in Him, turn from your sin, and love Him, because He has loved you with a great love, a sacrificial love, a worthy love. 
And if you do know this God of peace, maybe you've known Him for a while now, let us not move on from these truths. As we close the book of Hebrews, let us remember the deep truths that they have preached to us and let them be the very fuel to the flame of the Christian life. Now, in verse 21, he shifts from the work that God has done through Christ to the work that He does in His people. This great prayer of blessing, the author gives these details, and he finally gets to the request and petition portion of his prayer. He says, May the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do His will. Do you see the two verbs there? That God does? That He equips you and I? That He works in us? If God has accomplished the greater need, which is salvation from our sins, He will certainly accomplish these lesser needs. So the first one, equip you. This verb has the idea of strengthening, uh, to perfect, to make one right as he or she ought to be, to complete you. This is what God does in the work, in the life of the Christian. The next verb here in verse 21 Working in us to carry out, to execute, is what this means. This is God's work so that we can be His representatives in the world. In your home, in my home, not just here in our church building, but in the life of our church, in your workplace, in the school, in the city, where you live, where you work, where you play. God working in us to be His representatives. And this verse, this verse doesn't necessarily mean this idea of God just kind of fix you, fixes you right up so that you will look a certain way to certain people. No, God is working in you to look a certain way on His behalf. My five-year-old son, Augie, he loves his superhero costumes. And I was asking him this morning, Augie, who's your favorite superhero? And he said, Superman. I said, well, why do you wear your Iron Man costume all the time then? And Augie, if you can imagine him, our little five-year-old chunky monkey, he's dressed up as Iron Man. He thinks he's Tony Stark. He thinks he's rich. He thinks he's good-looking, strutting around. And then he puts his suit on, and he's jumping from couch to couch in our basement, which is legal in our house. And then all of a sudden, kabam! He fires his blaster, and he hits the bad guy. Or what I really like is when he protects his sister Margot from the bad guys down there in the basement. But more often than not, he tends to kabam his sister right in the face. And <laughs> she comes wailing upstairs and like, Iron Man, get up here. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. And I wonder if sometimes we think that we're playing the part of the Christian, but we're just wearing the costume of the Christian. And we don't know or we don't really care what the will of God is. And this might be because either the Christian life is hard and the fuel that you have used in your Christian life through your past has begun to burnt up or maybe you don't know the will of God or maybe you're not even a Christian but you're trying to act like one. 
And ladies and gentlemen, this is why community is so important. God has designed His church to bring about His will in the lives of His people. The church is so important because you and I learn what it means and what it looks like to do God's will. We do have a responsibility to live out the one another's in Scripture. To live out the one another's in our lives. We have a responsibility for the care and the influence of not only our own souls, but also the souls of the little ones in our church. We have a responsibility of those who are struggling in marriage in our church to help them stay true to their wedding vows. We have a responsibility to consider others more significant than ourselves. In that great selfless charge from Philippians chapter 2, we see that God who begins a work of salvation in our hearts, as He sets our hearts ablaze, it is the very community that adds fuel to that fire. Much like when I started that riot as a freshman at CSU, and so many people adding fuel to the flame, that's how God has designed His church. To help us grow, to burn brightly in a world that so desperately needs Him. And we see later in Philippians 2, this great paradox that is highlighted here in our passage, this idea of God working out the salvation that He began in us. We are to work out our salvation, and it is God who works in us, both, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God executing His work through our labors. We have a role to play in sanctification. It's not a passive, oh God, let your will be done. No, know God's will. Pursue God's will. One of my favorite pastors and preachers right now, Alistair Begg, said, all that we ever work out for good is what God has worked in for His pleasure. So let's not play dress up or put on the costume, but let's press into the will of our God of peace and let us do it together because he has done a great work through Christ and we can press on to do his will. Last point here, last point in the entire book of Hebrews, hopefully it's the shortest one, the work of carrying on, verses 22 through 25. And finally, in the book of Hebrews, we get this personal touch. This is in fact a letter written from a real person to real people. We see in verse 23 that Timothy has been released. For sure, the Timothy that we know as Paul's companion and son in the faith in Acts and the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy. The original audience knew Timothy as well. And the author deemed it important and I think hopeful to tell them that Timothy's out of prison. He's no longer incarcerated. We see in verse 24, we've got an Italian greeting. We're not exactly sure if this means that the author is in Italy or if that the Christians who are with him sending their greetings are from Italy. But we can piece together that the author and Timothy wanted a bit of a reunion with these Hebrew Christians. If you look with me back up at verse 19, we see this prayer request, which is the first time in the entire book that the author refers to himself as I in the first person singular. 
It comes in the form of a prayer that He would be restored to them. You see the pastoral care that this great penman has for his audience. And what's interesting is we're never given the author's identity in the book of Hebrews. It's been pretty much a, an intense debate throughout church history, and I'll be as bold as to say it probably wasn't Paul. Um, you can disagree with me on that. That's fine. Um, but I think it wasn't Paul because of what he says in Hebrews 2, verse 3. It says that in light of the salvation we have received, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. What I think that means is that the author and his audience had heard of Christ's accomplished work of his salvation. But if you remember, Paul, the apostle, he didn't just hear of the work No, he saw the Lord Jesus face to face. He saw him face to face on the road to Damascus and he was called by the Lord Jesus himself. And then at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, we see kind of this bleak outcome. He's finished the race. He's kept the faith. His life is being poured out as a drink offering in 2 Timothy. And he's in this Roman prison and he's summoning Timothy to come to him, Paul is. Well, now Timothy's been released. And some commentators think that Timothy came, saw Paul, and got arrested. And then Paul died in this Roman prison. was beheaded. But regardless of who it was written by, we know that the truths in it ring the same to the first audience who did know the original author. Those truths ring true to us today. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Only God knows. That's what Origen said, the great father of the church in the third century. So we see in verses 24 and 25, we've got greetings given to all. Greet all the leaders, all the saints. Grace was to be with you all. And if you remember, this letter was written to these Hebrew Christians facing persecution. They are being called to leave Christ and go back to the ways of Judaism to obey the Jewish law. Would their flicker of a Christian life continue to burn or would it get snuffed out? Well, verse 22, the author says, I appeal to you brothers, bear with my word of exhortation for which I have written to you briefly. I wouldn't define the book of Hebrews as a brief letter, but maybe he does. He's a good pastor. He thinks his sermons are nice and brief. But he's calling them back to listen to what he has just written to them. Listen to how he's exhorted them, how he's warned them, how he's painted these beautiful truths of the shadows of Christ found in the Old Testament and how they've been fulfilled through the redemption and salvation in Christ. And so Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels, than Moses, than Melchizedek, than Abraham, than Joshua, and Joseph. And because Jesus is better, we can carry on. We can continue to burn. Who's heard the phrase, keep calm and carry on? Yeah, hopefully most of you. Um, Maybe you've seen the poster or the memes. Uh, But how many of you know where that phrase came from? Anybody? 
keep calm, carry on, there it is. My, my British buddy. Well, this was a motivational poster released by the British government before World War II. There were threats of massive airstrikes. Uh, they were widely predicted to be coming, and the public was set into a fit of panic, so to speak. And so the British government, they released a set of motivational posters, keep calm and carry on, to bring up the morale. And I have a couple of these. There's another one, freedom is in peril, defend it with all your might. <laughs> I have a picture of a couple of the posters. Uh, well, um, what's, what's pretty interesting about how these posters came about um, is uh, the, the keep calm and carry on poster that is wide known to us today. It wasn't wide, wide known back then. This is a very rare picture of the poster actually being posted. Um, the, the Brits back then, when they, were, when they read these posters, they thought they were kind of patronizing. And so the, the British government said, okay, let's scrap them, let's get them out of here. And before keep calm and carry on could be widely distributed, um, it was pulled. And so, um, in the year 2000, there was a bookstore owner in northern England who bought a, a set of books, a box of books, at an auction, and at the bottom of that box was the poster, Keep Calm and Carry On. He thought the artifact was pretty cool, and so he put it in the window of his bookstore, and he got so many comments on it that they liked it, that he decided to make 500 copies of them and sell it, like a good marketer. And uh, long story short, kind of caught fire, sold out of them very quickly, and the phrase and the poster was widely distributed. And the, the owner of the bookstore knew he had reached the pinnacle when he uh, saw a mug that uh, said, keep calm and carry on on it. And so he picks up the mug and he turns it over and says, made in China. He <laughs> says, well... The news has gone international. And so um, when he was interviewed about releasing the poster and they asked him, why did you release it? He said, well, it's cheaper than antidepressants. He said, yeah, that's true. Well, as we shut down Hebrews, I think this concept of keep calm and carry on is somewhat of the message of Hebrews. Uh, this idea of Jesus is better. And I kind of made my own poster. Jesus is better, and so let us carry on. Jesus is better. I try not to deal in absolutes or hyperbole, but I will right now. Jesus is better than anything you are facing. Anything that you will face. And in light of that, we can carry on together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of not only that poster that we can keep on and carry on, but the truth that we have seen time and time again that Your Son, Jesus, is in fact better. And therefore, You are the One who equips us and You are the One who works in us. And so we can carry on. And so Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who maybe their Christian life is a bit of a flicker, I pray that You would work in their lives. I pray that You would use the ordinary means of grace, of Your Word, of prayer, of Your people gathered together 
and the ordinary means of grace of a Christian friend to encourage their hearts, to help them to continue to carry on. Lord, we thank You for the book of Hebrews. And as often, my my heart is sad whenever we finish a book and, and close it. We just thank You that You have given us Your eternal Word. And that You continue to use it in the life in the life of our church even as we move on. And so God, I, I pray just that You would continue to equip us, make us perfect, complete, so that we represent You well here in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.